This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for August 11th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on this week's show, we hear about the skewed perception of our own hands, extremely weird giant viruses, and more from Science's newsletter editor, Christy Wilcox. After that, AAAS intern Andrew Saintsing learns about why some trees are repulsive to each other. Michael Kalyushny discusses his science paper on what keeps trees of the same species from living close together in diverse habitats like tropical forests. This year, this summer, actually, we here at Science launched a daily newsletter called Science Advisor. Christy Wilcox, the newsletter editor, is here to talk about what it's like to come up with so, so many stories a week and share some of her favorites. Hi, Christy. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Oh, sure, sure. Happy to have you. This is a daily newsletter, which means five days a week, and I'm seeing more than five items a day, and each needing a headline, a teaser, a link, maybe even an image. And that's not just content from our journals and our news site, but it's from everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. It is everything in science and science as I like to say. Okay, big S and little s science. That's great. Are you enjoying this process? You know, I have to kind of sift through stuff for work where I'm like looking at what the journals are publishing, looking at what the news team is publishing, but this is a whole other level. Are you liking kind of being this monstrous sifter of scientific news? Yeah, no, I, I really enjoy my job. It's really fun to to keep up on the latest findings in science in general. And it's it's something I've always done. I've always been a big consumer of science news. And that's why I started out as a blogger, because I loved talking about all this science news back way back when, when I was a young, oh yeah, young wee little thing. In the age of blogging. I remember that time. In the age of blogging, exactly. So I started out as a blogger because I just, I love talking about science. I can and do do it all day. Yeah, so funny when I said, oh, you know, we're going to, I'm going to ask you to pick your favorites. Tell me what you've been, you know, sharing with your friends. And you're like, I share everything. <laughs> so as you mentioned, this is not, everything is not sourced from in-house. And, you know, one of the items that caught my eye when I, this is actually, I was spying on the Slack channel. It was even before it became a newsletter item. So this, this was one of my favorite topics in the past few weeks. This was how 
much we think our hands weigh, that we underestimate the weight of our hands, fingers, palms, wrists, that physical weight, we perceive it as less than it is. How, how did they find this out? What were they trying to show here with this kind of research? They were interested in just understanding how do we perceive our body? What do we think our bodies feel like? What do we think they weigh? Things like that. And so what they did essentially is tied weights to people's hands behind a screen or whatever so they couldn't see what, what the weight was. Mm -hmm. No visual representation of it. And then just asked them, you know, hey, what I just tied to your wrist, does that weigh less or more than you? Wow. And so they did that with this series of weights and they from that got an estimated amount that people think their hands weigh. And it turned out to be half of what people's hands actually weigh. So I mean we are we think our hands are half the weight. Wow. That they really are. And but that could change, right? That can change. We can say, my hands feel really heavy now. Yeah. And the best part about this study, in my opinion, or the, the funniest part anyway, is that they then had them squeeze like a gripper to tire their hands out and then said, how much do your hands weigh? And they were like 30% closer or something like that. You know? <laughs> so if you were tired, you thought your hands weighed more and that made you more accurate. Yeah. And I like that they found some kind of, you know, orthogonal evidence. Like, you know, they looked at people who have lesions in their brain or, or who have lost a limb and they talked about the weight of that limb, for example, and how they were perceiving it differently depending on whether or not they felt like it was part of their body. Right, right. Yeah. And that's where the this becomes sort of translational, right? If you're having to make for a missing limb. Yeah. If you think your limb was lighter, then you're gonna think that this prosthetic that is the same weight as your original limb is heavier than it should be. Right. And it's gonna it's gonna mess you up in that sense because you don't realize that you thought your wrist or arm or whatever was so light. That's so fascinating. So yeah, I this is exactly what I love about sifting through the literature. It's just you're just like, okay, idea I never thought of. Okay, experiment I would never have imagined someone actually doing. Another story you talk about and you call these future news because they're preprints, they're not yet peer reviewed, was on giant viruses found in the soil. Now this is new because up until now, and we've talked about giant viruses before on the podcast, they're big, they're like, you know, sometimes like larger than a bacterial cell, but mostly they've been focusing on, researchers have been focusing on the ones found in water, like in, I think some were found in like a big reservoir or like in freshwater. So, you know, this is new because for some reason they're being found in soil now. Well, they have found indications that they were in soil. I mean, yeah. when you look at genetics, when you look at DNA that's just in the environment, you can find all of these sequences that suggest there are tons of giant viruses in soil. And in fact, the authors behind the study, that's part of why they decided to look at soil is that someone had done a metagenomic study and showed that there was this diversity of giant viruses expected to be in the soil of this forest in Massachusetts. And so they wanted to know what those viruses looked like. Right. I mean, can you really know it's a giant virus just by its DNA? I mean, don't you need to actually <laughs> look at it with your with a microscope and say it's really big for a virus? <laughs> I mean, there is that. There is definitely that. But also just like we have very few viruses that we can culture, mm -hmm. that we can take pictures of, essentially. Right. And so how do you know what these things are going to look like if you haven't ever seen 
a picture of them if you can't have them in culture. And so the cool thing about what they did is they took these imaging protocols and applied them to these heterogeneous mixtures from the soil. Instead of just a, a pure culture of a virus, they just looked at everything that was in there, basically, on this really, really small scale. And what they saw, it just, it stopped me in my tracks when I first spotted the preprint because they were just so weird. I mean, they have all these little tubey bits or furry <laughs> bits or like shapes, all sorts of different shapes and things that we've just never even imagined. And and that to me was just so fascinating. And I especially loved it because when I reached out to the researcher, I wanted to make sure that it was okay that I used this figure that they had because it had all these different shapes in it. And he was just wrote back to me and was like, oh, yes, of course. And, you know, I'm so interested in this because everyone's looking for aliens out in space and they're right under our feet. And I just loved it. <laughs> like, yeah, that's exactly why I loved it. That's the researcher's going to be like, oh, but here's one more really cool image. Here's one more really cool <laughs> I love it when that happens. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they have different kinds of functional parts that we really haven't seen in viruses uh, sampled so far from other giant viruses. Exactly, exactly. And and we have no idea what they're doing with these random fibers and furry bits and, and all of that. We Presumably, they, they play some role in how those viruses interact with their hosts, how they move around, how they do something. But we, we honestly have no idea at this point. It's all like this fertile ground for, for research. Yes. Thank you for the pun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one more before I let you go. And this one is actually from one of the journals. This is from Science. And it's on the speed of cracking, breaking the crack barrier or cracking the sound barrier. I don't know. Supersonic cracking. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about uh, what caught your eye about this one? And uh, yeah, maybe some of the visuals that went with it. Yeah, this one just verbally, it doesn't necessarily sound that exciting. But for me, when I saw the video of them, so they had these special hydrogels or whatever, and they just pulled them really hard and made them tear right? by pulling them so hard, and then saw that those tears could actually reach supersonic speeds. And that was counter to theory and everything before that point, that they thought that the sound barrier was a barrier for how cracks could travel but there's this just this beautiful video which i i used as a gif in my email of one of these cracks and you can see the mock cones coming off like you can see those lines reverberating and it's it's just so cool yeah and why is it important to know how fast that cracks can come and go or how fast they can propagate yeah so this ultimately relates to anything where we want to understand how something breaks, whether that's materials that we are using in machinery, et cetera, buildings, or even just how the ground opens up. How do earthquakes lead to cracking in the ground? So understanding the physics of cracking helps you understand all these different things that can crack. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, Christy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You know, I hope we didn't keep you too long away from your constant trawling for new stories. I'm sure I will make it. <laughs> okay. Thanks again. Christy Wilcox is the editor for the daily newsletter, Science Advisor. You can find links to the stories we discussed on the podcast page and find a subscribe link on the podcast page, on the homepage, all kinds of places on the site, science.org. 
Stay tuned for a conversation with AAAS intern Andrew Saintsing and researcher Michael Kalyushny on what long-term data sets can reveal about diversity in tropical forests. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and when I'm out in nature, I'm used to seeing trees clustered together by species. Here's a eucalyptus grove, and there's a redwood grove, and over there are some laurels. But in some tropical forests, even small plots of land can feature striking levels of diversity. Creating models that capture this phenomenon has been historically challenging, but Michael Kalyushny and his colleagues believe they've found the missing ingredient to make the models work. They shared their findings in last week's issue of Science. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hello, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you here. So just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about how tropical forests compare to forests in the temperate zone in terms of biodiversity and species distribution? So the incredible thing about tropical forests is that you could have 1,000 species, perhaps even more, in one square kilometer, species of trees and shrubs. And on top of that, of course, you have birds, you have mammals, you have just life of all kinds of sorts is everywhere. And in fact, Alfred Russell Wallace, the scientist who co-discovered evolution by natural selection, along with Charles Darwin in the 19th century, he wrote a description of the main features of tropical forests in the 19th century. And he wrote that when you walk in a tropical forest, you see trees of all kinds, shapes, and sizes, but you never see the same one repeated. And if you see a species, an individual of some species, and you want to see another tree of the same species, you may need to walk for miles. And even then, it's not sure you'll see another one. However, the interesting thing is, he was wrong. People in the 80s, specifically Steve Hubble, a pioneer of ecology, he was the first to ask the question, wait, I mean, Ralph Russell Wallace told us these stories from the 19th century, but what do we know? Do we have the data? So he was the first person to create a huge forest plots, half a square kilometer, where he mapped every tree. And then they could know exactly where the trees are. He found out that in a sense, like in temperate forests, trees of the same species are clumped. For some species, you could have huge areas with no trees and then some area with many trees. So perhaps it's not that different from a temperate forest. There's clearly a huge difference in terms of the numbers, but is there a difference in terms of the spatial distribution and spatial arrangement of the different species? That is a question that is more complex. So can we talk a little bit more about your study site? Where was your study site? And can you kind of describe what it looks like? So we're talking about the most studied tropical forest and potentially the most studied forest in the world. 
It is managed by the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. It's located on an island in the Panama Canal, Barra, Colorado Island. And in that plot, they established that Steve Hubble that I mentioned before, established a 150 hectare plot, an area the size of 100 football fields. And it's 1,000 meters by 500 meters. And there, every five years, they measure the exact location, identity, and size of every tree. So there are like 300 species of trees and shrub. And you know their exact location, you know their size, and you can see the forest changing in time. You can see trees dying, you can see new trees appearing, you can see how trees grow and what it depends on. And you, can, and you know who, are the, who their neighbors are. And there's a lot of information about that forest because it's the most studied one. So for example, one of the amazing things they have is seed traps. In 200 places in the forest, they have these mesh nets that capture the seeds that fall there, and then they can measure and identify them for decades. So you kind of looked at uh, where you would expect trees to be by chance, but then you had to factor in the fact that trees can only distribute their seeds so far. What kind of would limit uh, where a tree might distribute its seeds to? So first question is what is by chance? So when I was saying before, trees of the same species are clumped, what do I mean by clumped? Clumped compared to what? The answer is typically people say clumped compared to just the situation in which all the trees are just, you just take 100 trees, you take 100 points, you throw them at just like randomly across this area you're looking at. Now, it's not a very biologically sensible model. Trees are just random points everywhere. A much more sensible way to describe where trees should be is the apple does not fall far from the tree just because it can't. So what we did is that we used a simulation model on a computer to ask, okay, so how should the distribution of a species, how should the distribution of adults of a specific species look like if all that happened is that trees disperse their seeds according to this estimated distance distribution? What's the chance you'll fall five meters away, 10 meters away, 15 meters away, and so forth? And just... Seeds that fall, they establish, and adults die at random. So it's a random process with this dispersal limitation. And by the way, the average across species is 27 meters. The average distance, there are species of trees that disperse to their seeds like six meters. This is very close on average. And some, some species that are dispersed by like toucans that carry their seeds far away. So on an average could be 100 meters. And we know that for dozens of species. And with that, we can feed it into the computer and ask, okay, so how should the forest look like if everything going on was random birth, death, and dispersal according to this dispersal distribution that people estimated? So you were kind of describing generally this area. More specifically, like, what does it look like for individual trees? How many diverse places are there for trees to grow within a single forest? That's a good question. In fact, Steve Hubble shows this study site to be relatively homogenous. It's amusing because the big question we're attacking is what determines species diversity. And it seems trivial that in a place where you have a lot of habitat heterogeneity, a lot of habitats, you could have many species. And that's why Steve Hubble specific, that's what I've heard, 
chose this place to be relatively homogeneous. So it was like a plateau at the edge of the, before the Panama Canal was formed, it was like at the top of the plateau. So there is some heterogeneity there. There's a small area that was until 100 years, there was some form of agriculture. The rest, no record of that. There is a swamp, a seasonal swamp in the middle, and that is clearly a different habitat. The higher elevations are a bit drier. There are slopes that that have more moisture. So some of the species you see adapted to specific conditions, and that definitely could affect their spatial distribution. And for many of them, it does. However, our key findings are still that most of the species show very, very strong repulsion from each other, from their own kind. So why would we find this repulsion within a species? Why are trees getting spread apart? That's a key thing. So going back to that Alfred Russell Wallace in the 19th century said that trees are very, very far apart. And then in the 70s, a very important ecologist by the name Dan Jensen and also another very important ecologist by the name Connell, they came up with a idea called the Jensen-Connell hypothesis. They noticed if you look under a canopy of a big tree, you find many, many seedlings and small trees there, but not of the same species as the adult above them. And their observation was that there are many natural enemies, pathogens and herbivores that are species specific and they attack and kill the juveniles of a species near or under the adults. And that will allow other species to actually establish and grow slowly under that adult. And that would explain the key observations that were mentioned by Alfred Russell Wallace, that you'd have many species, species can coexist, that you'd have large distances between species and that there would be potentially many rare species that would be able to persist in this situation. And then Hubble came and actually looked at forests and said, oh, wait, everything is aggregated. This is 1979. And since then, a lot of evidence for Jonathan Connell, but on the other hand, everything is aggregated. So how are these things compatible with each other? We close this loop by saying, yes, these things are compatible with each other when you actually incorporate the measured distances. We're just looking at it the wrong way. We're just looking at it compared to a situation in which all the trees throw random points across the forest. That is a random distribution. And compared to that, everything is aggregated. Well, yeah, because the seeds just cannot arrive in many parts of the forest, and people know that. Now, one small addition, which is a key thing, most of the trees would want to grow away from adults. Most of the juveniles would not feel very comfortable in the shade. So how do I know it's just this species-specific effect and not just everybody suffers under everybody? And that's a very important question, because if all the juveniles suffered equally under all the trees, this would not be able to maintain diversity because the diversity is maintained when a species suffers mostly from its own kind. And when you suffer mostly from your own kind, you cannot take over the forest because as you become more common, you lose so many of your juveniles. So is the effect species specific according to what Jonathan O'Connell suggested? And the key thing is we use theoretical simulations where we actually incorporate it like a situation in which trees suffer from others, from other species, and the trees suffer from their own kind. And we showed that 
the strong magnitude of repulsion that we see, huge distancing can only be explained by species-specific effects. Because think about it, there are trees everywhere. So there's shading everywhere, more or less. The trees drink up the nutrients pretty much everywhere. It will generate a little bit of repulsion, but not a lot. The magnitude of repulsion that we see in the forest is only theoretically consistent with very strong species-specific repulsion, which very likely is the result of these species-specific enemies. What's the scale that these repulsive effects are acting at? Basically, we think about the enemies as operating or generally competition of all kinds, negative effects between trees happening at a distance of around maximum 20 meters. What if you look at a larger distance? So we found that many trees have even at 100 meters away from them less neighbors than expected. And initially we were surprised, and then we ran a simulation and we got the same. In a simulation, you also get this, even if the enemies only kill things seven meters away. And then in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. If I repel you and you repel your neighbors and they repel their neighbors and they repel their neighbors and you get basically large scale order from local scale interactions, if you have less neighbors of your own species up to 100 meters, you will have more species of other trees up to 100 meters. But then at larger scales, things could be more homogeneous because just everybody's more spread out. We still want to look at some point at larger scale data, but next time you interview, we'll talk about that. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Michael Kalyushny is a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Texas. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.